We are in a study of the book of Revelation. Chapter 11 will be our place today. I'll have you stand in a few moments. We are working our way through the apocalypse. And uh, we have been in an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet in our last study. And today we will just introduce the seventh trumpet. There are a number of themes here in our text that we will circle back to in coming weeks. So just a thought I have from a particular phrase here, a hymn, a song sung, sung by a choir in, in heaven. The Lord's Prayer, um, which I know all of us would know and be familiar with this morning, lies central and at the heart of Jesus' most famous or well-known sermon called the Sermon of the Mount. It would be one that we know have many quotations from, that even many of its precepts and principles the world will know about. Many call that sermon the Christian Manifesto. And by that I mean, you know, Jesus really outlines for us in chapters 5, 6, and 7 um, how we're to live, what, what his expectations for his children are, what our attitudes to be. Really, what he calls us to is to go above and beyond the law, to live in the realm of grace, to live in grace, to give in grace, and to have that attitude in our lives. But in that great sermon lies, once again, the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And really, it's not something that's just supposed to be recited verbatim necessarily, but it's an outline. It, it teaches us the things that should be a priority in our life. And interestingly, that prayer begins with the hope for the future. And it simply says this, Thy kingdom come, Amen. thy will be done. But then here's, here's the real part of the prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That's the prayer of the saints. God, we want to see your kingdom here. Lord, we, I, I pray that a day is coming that what's done in heaven will be done in the same way on earth. Myriads of Jesus' followers have prayed this prayer. And they've especially prayed this prayer in life's most difficult moments, when, when the world around them was in its own kind of tribulation and distress, when the Lord's kingdom, of course, would shine brightest in their hearts and be most appealing. This past week, I received a letter from a missionary outlining the things that had happened in the last several months. But he concluded his letter in the same way that many missionaries do in other letters I've received. And he said this, praying that the Lord comes back soon. And of course, that's something I think would be all of our prayer this morning. Well, these words and events of revelation that we're going to look at today finally bring us to the inauguration of that final ultimate reality of thy kingdom come and thy will be done on this earth. There's going to be a day in time when our present reality will fade. There will no longer be two kingdoms in this universe, but only one. And at its head will be the Lord Jesus Christ. The realms of heaven and earth will, will merge into one great dispensational reality. And since the fall, and organizationally, really since the, the day of the Tower of Babel, the universe has been divided into really just two great kingdoms. The kingdom of God. And then the kingdoms, or kingdom, of this world. 
Jesus alluded to these great kingdoms, these two optional choices, when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If I were in my kingdom, my followers would come to my rescue. Jesus alluded while on earth that he was part of another kingdom. The Apostle Paul referenced the two-dimensional kingdoms of this universe. He said, the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Satan is the ruler, the leader of the second kingdom. Satan is routinely referred to in the Bible as the God of this world, the king and prince of the planet. He is the ruler of darkness and this earth, albeit temporarily as a usurper, but he has through his corruptions and deceit stolen this earth from being as the kingdom of heaven is. But all of that comes to an end and a grand conclusion at the end of the tribulationary period. A time of unparalleled darkness concludes with God in Christ shattering the powers of darkness and finally, once and for all, for all the rest of eternity, one kingdom in this universe remade by our Savior. Let me invite you to stand this morning as we read a couple of verses together. We'll be in Revelation chapter 11. We'll begin our reading in verse number 15. Revelation chapter 11, verse number 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that they should give reward unto thy servants and prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them, which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings, and the voices and thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. Our Heavenly Father, I pray in the next few moments as we, Lord, consider thy kingdom come, that, Lord, we would understand. Lord, I pray everyone in this room would understand today that they are citizens in residence of one of two kingdoms. There, there are not other choices. Lord, today we are either citizens and residents of the kingdom of God, or we are not. And then, Lord, to our point today, I, I pray we give consideration that, Lord, what we give our life to, what we give our energy, what we pay homage to, is to relate to only one of two kingdoms, the kingdom, Lord, of heaven, or, Lord, the kingdom of this world. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help us Give thought to this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for your willingness to stand. <clears throat> From the perspective of heaven, we have made our way through the majority of the seven-year period known in the Bible as the Tribulation, commonly referred to as the Apocalypse. 
a seven-year period of time of unparalleled distress upon the earth, really divided into two segments, the first three and a half years, where the Antichrist begins to set up his universal, or I should say worldwide rule upon the planet, then broken by an assertion of his during the middle of that time that he, in fact, is God, followed by three and a half more years of even greater time of distress upon the planet. So far we've seen the seven sealed judgments and the disaster they brought upon the earth, and they are now past. We've also now discussed six trumpet judgments born out of the seventh seal that have brought even a greater decimation upon the planet. Somewhere during the last three and a half years, this final great woe, this last trumpet of God, has now sounded. The grand mystery, the plan of God, is about to come to its final consummation and conclusion. What was conceived in birth in eternity past, through the days of creation, of course, in the days of Adam and then Israel, in the days of our church, all are now come to the final moment, the final ticking of human history, of the clock of the cosmos. All this is about to come to its end. This is the moment that the Apostle Paul said all of creation has grown for since its inception and after the fall. It's a time the Old Testament prophets declared one day would come, the kingdom of heaven come to earth. The day that when the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, would rule and reign from this planet for eternity. The time of Jesus' re-entry, his second advent, the eschaton, is about to be pronounced. It has been pronounced. And now, as it is announced in heaven, this great myriad of voices in heaven shout out and sing this great refrain, Thy kingdom is coming, and he shall reign forever. They sing out, the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord. I love it. Everything it is is no longer going to be wrong. It's not going to be broken. It's not going to be in darkness. It's not going to be confusion. All, all, these, all this world, this brokenness is going to be brought to a brand new beginning. And the kingdom of heaven is going to consume the kingdoms of this world. And Christ will reign. <clears throat> the phrase, are becoming in this text, is found it's in a very unique tense in the Greek. And the idea here is there's been a declaration spoken. But the reality is really not yet. There's still space of time before this actually happens as Jesus returns. But the idea of this phrase, are becoming, is that what has been delivered or has been spoken has been said with such authority and certitude that even though it has not yet happened, it can be counted on as have, have already happened. And that's the idea. The trump has sounded. This is it. The final, the final conclusion is here. And God's kingdom has come and is coming. Though the seven bowl or seven vile judgments are yet to come, and we'll discuss these beginning in chapter 15, as well as the final great battle of Armageddon in chapter 19, in the eyes of the mind of heaven, the kingdom and eternal rule of Jesus Christ has begun with the, with the blowing of the seventh trumpet. For this reason, we see the throne room of God break out in celebratory worship. The hosts of heaven 
fall upon their faces yet again. The four great living ones, the four beasts, the 24 elders. It's not, we're not spoken of all who is. This is a great voice. This is the audience of heaven singing out in triumph that God is coming. It is the expression of worship and gratitude for God for setting the universe in final order as the seventh trumpet is blown. This proclamation that the Lord God Almighty is coming. That phrase, the Lord God Almighty, is an expression of His universal sovereignty finally fully observed in the universe. And then His eternality and His deity in which art and which was and art to come. God has finally, and I love this phrase, God has always possessed omnipotent power. God has always been uh, the master of the universe, but now He's taken that great power. He's taken all His sovereignty and all His omnipotence and all His might, and now He's going to explode upon this planet and exercise it. And man, what a glorious day that's going to be. Especially from our vantage point in following behind Him from heaven on this great and grand day. It's going to be incredible. God has taken the power that's always been His, and He is going to use it and at His disposal. Now the omnipotence of God is asserted as He dethrones Satan and remakes the universe, and He sits on a new throne as a universal Lord and Savior. That's what is being sung about and praised and worshiped in heaven in this chapter. But upon the earth is an entirely different scene. The, the earth is still dark and bleak and black. It rises in smoke and ashes. Its inhabitants are in misery from the judgments that have already come. You would think, you would reason it would make common sense to us that at this point humanity would recognize the God of heaven. That they would yield to Him, but they would bow to Him, but, but they don't. Most likely those who are going to be saved in the tribulation have already been saved. At this point we've probably reached just a hardness of heart, just the depths of human depravity and deception by the devil and his minions, that now the humanity is probably deluded beyond hope. And the Bible says they're angry. As the world and the universe is about to come to an end, they're angry. And they're angry at God. They're angry at His followers. They're angry at this plan. They're, they're angry at His redemption. They're angry at His intrusion into their world and through their life. And the Bible says they stew and they seethe in anger, in hostility towards God. It's a testament to the universal influence of Satan at this point, and also to the depths of human depravity to which we can fall. There have already been 13 unimaginable plagues that have pummeled the earth. There's been the obvious deception of the broken promises of the Antichrist, possessed by the devil, and yet mankind still is in blindness in this last part of the tribulation. Humanity still fights and resists God. And anger is then manifest. We will learn about in coming chapters. As the armies of the world gather to get together in the plains of Medigo, this sits to the east of, of Jerusalem. It's a vast and awesome, huge plain. It really is surrounded like a bowl. And the Bible tells us that in this day, the armies of the world in anger and opposition against God will be gathered together by their rulers to fight God, to fight His followers. And they gather there, only to be destroyed 
at the second coming of Christ, at the eschaton of the second advent. Upon Christ's return, the last armies of the earth will be finally destroyed. Christ will enter Jerusalem to remake it. We discussed this just past Wednesday in Zechariah chapter 14 about how when Christ comes, what He's going to do, Jerusalem, and He's going to elevate Jerusalem. He's going to flow over the plains. That he's going to create a river out of the city that will really nourish the world. That all the nations will then come in the beginning of the millennial to worship Him. This is what is being proclaimed here. And then we'll all go into eternity. In our text today, the text treats all these events as one unified whole. Thy kingdom is coming. Yet much of this is still to be completed. It speaks of Christ's reign beginning. The judgment, which we'll spend much more time talking about in the days, has been completed. The dead will be judged. His people will be rewarded. And in verse 19, that heaven will be opened. John looks up in this vision that he receives and he sees heaven open. He's been there before. He's been in the throne room of God. But now he sees what we understood on earth during the temple tabernacle days. He looks into what is called the Holy of Holies, the place that man could not enter into before Jesus Christ tore the veil upon his death and resurrection. We look and we see the ark of God that contained the Decalogue, the, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the, the rod that Moses or Aaron carried. The jar of manna, it really most specifically represented the manifest presence, the theophany. It's the presence of God. And, and, and John's like, the idea is this, John looks at heaven and the best that man can still yet sees God. And it's opened and it's coming to earth. It would have been incredible. An incredible scene. It's beyond the scope and ability of words to convey but it will be something we experience one day from our vantage point in heaven returning with Christ. It's a great text. I, I think that you know, most likely God intends for us as we read these words to just um, be sobered by them, to rejoice in them that God is coming. This, it's, a, it's a reality. In our times of despair and hope, to be cheered by this is not all there is. There's a greater reality that will encompass what we know. But as I reflect on this passage, I begin to remember and realize a, a thought that I want to convey today. And, and let, me, let me tell you in advance where I'm trying to go so no one's confused. You and I live in a culture, and we swim in it. We're inundated by it. We hear its voices. We listen to its media. We hear its precepts and we hear its principles. We are like fish, albeit separate from the water, we are in the water. Does that make sense? And we would be naive to think that we are minus influence from the thinking and the culture and the principles and the precepts of the world. We may not be part of it as saints, having experienced salvation through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we can be very well colored by living in this world. And my, my, my thoughts are simply to present this idea that if we're not careful, we may be, be participants in a kingdom that we should not. There's a truth that's presented that we are part of only one or either of two kingdoms. 
you and I today can only express in our words and with our life two fealties, two loyalties. Either a loyalty and love and devotion to the kingdom of God or to the kingdoms, which really is one unified kingdom under Satan, the kingdom of this world. The world is made up of many nations, many tribes, many people, many languages, many cultures. It's home to many religions, many beliefs, and many viewpoints. But in the end, under the microscope of God, all this diversity of humanity falls under the banner of the kingdoms of this world. And through salvation, we are translated from citizens and kingdoms of the world to the citizens and kingdoms of heaven, which one day will be realized from there to here on this planet. We are either part and party to one of two kingdoms. We tend to think we certainly have been instructed to think in this postmodern world that things are much more complicated than that simple dichotomy of one kingdom or the other. We've been taught that, you know, truth is relative. In other words, postmodernism takes one big T-truth to lots of little T-truths that are no truths at all. We've been taught that my opinion is as good as your opinion, and an opinion is actually worth something, which in fact it may not be. And I know that's offensive, but it's the truth. We are taught that all things really are equal. Um, we take egalitarianism to a totally different spiritual level where, you know, everything is okay. You're okay. I'm okay. The truth is, it's not okay. The world's not okay. And your opinion is only as valid as the truth that it rests in. We're taught to embrace multicultural thinking, to reject anything that is absolutist in its, in its uh assertion or primacy, anything that claims authority, well, that can't be true. And I want to say to you, just because this world embraces that does not make that kind of thinking true. 1 John 2.15 says, love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. And of course, he's speaking, obviously, you know, don't have a love for tangible items. Don't be covetous. You know, don't, don't have that kind of attitude about things. But it's more than that. He said, don't possess the attitudes of the world, the philosophies of the world, the spirit of the world. Don't love that. Don't embrace its ideologies and its thinking. Because if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all, all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the kingdom of this world. Again, I am saying to you today, you are citizens of only one of two kingdoms. And every day, whether intentionally or not, you're paying loyalty to one of two. Two kings, two kingdoms, two choices. The truth of the Word of God and everything else. Christianity is not a choice among many valid choices. Christianity isn't even a religion. Christianity is a truth. It is a reality. 
it, it is absolute authority. Christianity is a truth. It is a relationship with the God, the creator of this world through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, provided for by His blood on the cross and the atonement there that took our sins and washed them away and imputed to us His righteousness. That is a truth. That is reality. And no man can stand in heaven one day to experience the kingdom of God minus that provision. There's no other way. There's no other way. Christianity is a truth. It's a relationship. It is the way that man and God relate to one another. It's the story of who we are, sinners, and who He is, holy. And how we can be reconciled to a holy God who created all that is. The religions of the world are all part of Satan's kingdom. Other religions are not sincere expressions of belief of the same God in different ways. Can you, can you imagine? That is not the, the way the world thinks at all. We've we taken the word tolerance and abused it to, to its max. And I, I am telling you, if we're not careful, we're going to be, become empathetic and sympathetic to this kind of thinking and this, this kind of talking and what we hear. Other religions are not expressions of sincerity to the same God. They are false. They are phony. They are untrue. And they fall under the auspice and the leadership of Satan, period. That's not mean. That's unkind. That is a grace to tell us the truth. The religions of the world belong to the, the king of this world. They may contain some truth, elements of wisdom, make some emotional and empathetic connections with us, but only enough to deceive humanity to believe a lie. Allah is not our God. He is another. Buddha is not God. He is a dead human. The spirit of Babylon, the Tower of Babel, the mystery of religions, the Canaanites, the Romans, the Greeks, the, their gods are really just a multifaceted expression of one kingdom and ruler, and that is Satan. Right. What's my point? If we're not careful, we're going we're gonna to begin to identify, and if not identify, begin to empathize with people and think you're all okay. Just be sincere. Just believe something. And we're going to lose the fact that Christianity has some exclusivity to it. That, 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 that you just can't be a Christian because you're a good person. And other people, because you're good, you're okay. They're not okay. Those involved in other religions fall in the auspice of Satan and they desperately, desperately, desperately need the gospel. God has set up government and authority to carry out justice, to keep the world from chaos. But politics and politicians and governments have long rejected God, as the book of Revelation makes clear, because in the end they all align against Him. The politics of the world are part of the current world's system under the auspice of the dark one. Just as Rome and Persia and Babylon, Assyria and Greece and other historic and contemporary governments are presented in the Bible as the enemies of God, today only the nation whose God is the Lord is blessed. The Bible again makes plain 
that when he comes, the governments of the world will be aligned against the Lord, siding with the Antichrist to stand against God and his people. The idea is this, I just want us to be careful. I believe we should be participants in government. I'll speak that to in a moment. We should be involved, but there is no salvation in politics. Our country cannot be made better long term. You can change laws, but you cannot change people's hearts minus the gospel. There's no sacredness in this system. It's just part of the failed world system corrupted by the sinful man who, are, who is its representatives. But because of this, it is so incredibly, vitally important that we obey the Word of God and pray for those who are over us in leadership and government. The Bible tells us we're to pray for our king. It seems to be okay today for, for good, godly Christian people to speak so irreverently about the, the, the people that God has allowed to be in positions of authority. We can disagree, but you need to be careful how we speak about that. And thank God that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And I would say to you that those few men and women who serve in government and in politics who share our faith in our heart, oh, how much, how, how deserving of they, are they of our support and our prayers? What's my point? If we're not careful, we'll be caught up in this kind of dualistic American political system where we think it's okay to be that instead of being Christian. And our thinking can't be guided by the culture. Our thinking has to be guided by the Bible. And you pray for our King. You pray for wisdom. You pray that we can live quiet and peaceful lives. What's our response to politics? Well, to be as, as, as responsibly involved as we can and then to beseech the one kingdom that can influence these kingdoms, and that is the kingdom of heaven and its ruler, our heavenly Father. Another corrupted, failed institution of our world and its philosophies are education. All genuine truth belongs to God. But as a whole, education has chosen the king of this world. It's embraced Darwinism instead of creationism. It's embraced relativism instead of truth. It has embraced feminism and gender confusion, and somehow they seem fit to make that their business in public education today. They don't honor God's design for the family. They don't support male and female as God created it. They embrace gender confusion, postmodern thought that rejects truth. These systems are as far from God as Night is from day. My, my point is not to belittle, nor even necessarily isolate ourselves from these things, but to understand we are guided by another, we are guided by a truth, and that's from heaven. We're supposed to be salt and light in the government. But Christian, first and primary. We're, if you go to school, if we teach there, I taught for 10 years in public education. Be salt and be light. 
we don't have to embrace its philosophies and attitudes to be participants. Matter of fact, we're supposed to be something very different, to think very different. By saying to you other religions are false, I am trying to combat this, this, this tolerant culture in America that's afraid to say anything is absolute or true. I'm trying to encourage you that more than ever, we need to be involved in prayer and evangelism and in the gospel. I'm not suggesting all education is evil I'm, or, or never advocating ignorance, but rather it's opposite. But to realize we need to pray for those people who are in that system to be salt and light there. Not to get our primary source of truth from the, 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 the pages in the playbook of the world, but rather from the pages in the playbook of the worldview of the Bible. To understand that America has no supernatural immunity from falling prey to the influence of, of the evil one. We have an enviable Christian heritage, but unless we continue that heritage by the way that you and I live as Christians, it will be lost if it is not already. Too often politics is like the blind leading the blind, and they need light. I want to say to us, be careful not to love this world nor the things of the world. Because we love the thing, we identify, we embrace these things. And I could, I could, I could be, get off on a hobby horse. And I want to speak very directly to our young people. Do not believe for a moment that media is exempt from the agenda of the world because media is driven by the world. Entertainment and its values come from the world, not from the Bible. The movies you watch do not originate in heaven, they originate someplace else. The opinions that are so easily embraced all around us, most of them do not come from heaven. They come from some other place. There's only one or two places they can come from. Either the truth of the Word of God or from another kingdom. The kingdom of God was initiated when Christ died for us on the cross. Again, Colossians 13, we're delivered from the powers of darkness. He has translated the kingdom of the sun, and we should live that way today. We need to realize when Jesus comes a second time, all the institutions, all the religions of the world, all the politics and philosophies that we so calmly embrace today will be eliminated and done away with. And all that will remain is love and truth, His truth, and nothing else. If we are not exceptionally careful and thoughtful, we are going to pay homage, give loyalty and fealty to the kingdom of this world by the way we think, the way we act. You know, I, I just, I, 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 this, this confrontation is constant. And I just, I don't know how it plays, especially in our young people's hearts. I think all of us are aware in the news of the, the recent abortion debates that have been going on. States are changing laws. I think to much of what's happened, you and I can say amen and praise God for the preservation of a life that He creates in the womb. We are fearfully, wonderfully made from the day of conception, and we belong to God. A lawmaker had, and it was so evil spoken of for simply making the simple assertion, and with all respect, lady, what's in your body is not yours, it's God's. It's not your life, it's not your body, it's God's. In response, a very respectable, accomplished lady in the military who chose to abort a child to advance her career as well as her siblings stood up before Congress and said, I am not a murderer. 
and either are my sisters and others who've chosen to abort a fetus. And I want to say to you young people and to everyone here, just because she said that doesn't make it true. Doesn't make it true. And I don't care how many times it's repeated. I don't care how many times you're told your body, your choice, it's not your choice. Matter of fact, your body's not even your own. If you're a Christian, you've been bought with a price and you belong to him. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Act like it. But that, that mentality, we swim in it. And all of a sudden, we're going to find ourselves as Christians being empathetic to a perspective that's embraced by the world. And it comes from one of two kingdoms. Either the kingdom of God, who does not support the termination of life, or the kingdom of darkness. It's not your opinion. It's not your thought. It's either true or it's untrue. I was caught off guard this week. I was at home, and uh, I was home alone with some grandkids. I was desperate. <laughs> and to seek a brief reprieve, I thought I would watch a Pixar movie. You guys know what Pixar is? Animation. I grew up when that stuff was relatively benign. And so I'm watching it. It was silly and fairly benign. And all of a sudden, um, one of the characters um, had a ring on his finger, and she said, oh, I'm engaged. And then she went on to say, and she, the woman I'm engaged to. And then she was shown with a same-sex partner with a child. And I'm thinking, now how does that happen? Doesn't even nature, biology, real truth tell you that's probably not a possibility? And that's on a kid, that's on a show made for your children. It's an agenda. It's dogmatism. It's indoctrination. And I assure you with all authority that is not coming from the kingdom of heaven. But it's just an animated show. It's a lie. It's deception. And I'm not trying to be dramatic. In that specific situation, it is satanic and it is devilish. That is not truth. And if we're not careful, we're going to brush up against this stuff. Just brush up against this stuff. We're just going to brush up against this stuff. Well, this person, and I, well, they, they say this and they feel this way and this is their experience. Okay, you, you can have sympathy for a human being in any level of confusion, but you cannot have sympathy for something that is not true. You are a citizen, if you are a child of God, of the kingdom of heaven. That means you are, you, you are obligated to have the common sense to embrace truth and not falsehood. I could go on and on and on. I simply want to suggest to you that navigating this world, here's my appeal and I'm finished. Please be careful. Please be careful. Moms and dads, take time to instruct your kids in the most basic elements of life. There's a God. There's a Savior. And things that aren't from Him are from someplace else. 
Very little is benign in this world anymore. The things that we may embrace and live for today are going to be destroyed one day. If more time we need to make sure we have a Christian worldview today. What do you believe about creation? The Bible says it happened in six days. Where do you think you came from? Well, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God made us and continues to do so. What do you believe about sexuality? Well, God made them male and female, and then he was done. What do you believe about the family? One man, one woman, forever raising kids for the purpose of producing Malachi, a godly seed. And that's the family. And that's not just a, listen, the family is not open for redefinition. And I don't care what politician says what, this is where we find the definition of a family. What do you believe about morality? What do you believe about purity? What do you believe about giving? What do you believe about sharing your faith and being a part of God's church? Whose kingdom are you a part of? And what kingdom are you supporting? Let me ask you to stand.